Hello golfers, today's episode is brought to you by Trackman Golf. Today's episode is also powered by Acra Golf Shafts. Proudly Canadian, Acra Golf Shafts use only the highest quality materials to create the most innovative golf shaft designs for custom club fitting. No shaft company is more dedicated to the professional club fitter than Acra Golf Shafts. Go to www.acragolf.com to find a certified dealer near you. And also today's episode is brought to you by Superspeed Golf. Would you like to hit the ball 20 yards farther? With the Superspeed Golf training system, this can become a reality. Superspeed uses the scientifically proven methods of overspeed training to help increase how fast your body can move during your swing. This works with a set of three specifically weighted clubs used only three times per week, 10 minutes a session, following online training protocols. Join over 700 tour pros by getting your set at www.superspeedgolf.com. Use the code SHKEEN, S-H-K-E-E-N, to receive 10% off your order. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. Yeah, so my name's Brandon. I'm Shaheen's brother and the co-host of the show. Um, sometimes Shaheen's not in to record these intros and outros, and I do them. And other times I just feel like doing them because it's a nice break from my regular day job, which is staring at social media. So uh, here I am, introing the show for you guys. This week, Shaheen uh, interviewed Carrot Gray. Carrot is one of Australia's leading golf instructors. He's an industry-awarded PGA professional, and uh, I'd say one of the new generation coaches who are, you know, uh, exposing all of their knowledge online. Um, Shaheen and him get into a really good conversation, uh, deep into swing mechanics, and uh, discuss a bunch of stuff. And they kind of go back and forth, um, you know, with the questions, and a lot of knowledge is shared. So hopefully, you guys enjoy the interview, and uh, I won't waste any more of your time. So here it is. Um, so dude, you want to just give a little intro on how you got started in the game? I, I usually do that with every guest that comes on just to kind of know their start, especially that you're from such a different part of the world than where I'm from. Uh, so I would imagine that the opportunities and the, the industry as a whole is quite different than where it is here in North America. Yeah. Yeah. Massively different. Obviously, um, being in Australia is quite far away from the hub of what most people perceive as where golf is kind of at the forefront in the UK and, and the States and Australia, we've had a lot of good players come out over here over the years, obviously great starting off with Greg Norman and Adam Scott and major champions scattered throughout. Um, I effectively played a game called cricket growing up, not too big in the States and Canada, but um, when I was about eight years old, we lived at the back of the golf course and I kind of really got stuck into it there. Um, my parents didn't play golf at all, but it was one of those things that cricket, you kind of needed a friend to, to play with. And we lived in a bit of a bush block on a fair bit of land so I could grab my golf club and belt some balls in the bush and my dad could, could, could come and help me find them. So I was really, um, I think, attracted to that side of it. I really liked the, the sort of system and routine and I suppose you could be quite methodical in the way that you went about it. You could measure what you were doing um, and you could really see some improvement and I think that started off initially with the handicap system and then as times evolved and I've gone through my career now into coaching and I can see kind of why I eventually led down this path. But um, I played junior golf for uh, pretty much in Perth in Australia, did a little bit of travel here and there. Um, I represented Australia when I was 18, uh, went over to China and played a couple of events there. And then I got to 19 and my parents pretty much said to me, they said, um, you got two options. You either go to college or university or you do your traineeship as a backup. So in Australia, it's a little bit different, but I, I think Canada is actually pretty much the same. You do three years as a PGA apprentice. And then um, once you've done that effectively, you qualify to coach. You're, you're not really allowed to, or it's frowned upon to coach golf in Australia unless you're a PGA pro. Um, I think the UK is pretty similar in that regard. I know it's quite different over in the States there. And um, that was effectively my backup as I was doing so. Um, during that whole time, I suppose I was looking at as, oh, this is worst comes to worst because by the time I'm 24, I'm expecting to be lighting it up on the PGA Tour, as I think a lot of hopefuls are. Um, yeah. And very few sort of work it out from there. But, um, but yeah, I uh, went straight out onto tour after I finished my traineeship, went up to Asia, uh, tried to go through qualifying school there and then missed out on doing that and then spent a couple of years going around Australia, 
through the South Pacific and, and that sort of thing. But um, had a couple of funky stories of why I didn't get there. I uh, got food poisoning on the night before Asian tour school. And then I was playing a tournament in Papua New Guinea of all places on the Australian tour. And on my way back to the airport at four o'clock in the morning, got pulled over by some drunk cops. They got their guns, tapped the sides of the car all the way up. And, and that kind of spooked me a bit. And I think I, at that point in time, I realized that I don't think it was quite worth the struggles that I was going through at the time to continue doing what I was doing. And, and I think uh, one more tournament after that, I came back and decided to, to head down uh, the vocational side of golf. So a head pro and then into coaching. Interesting. So your story is obviously very different from most. Um, mm. As a starting point, I actually wasn't aware that you had an attempt to go professional. I think that's really cool. I think that brings mm. a lot to the table in terms of coaches. Obviously, there are a handful of coaches that are super knowledgeable that don't go that route. Um, yeah. And kind of like you mentioned, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's frowned upon here to coach without your PGA cards. Um, obviously, there's a bunch of really good coaches who don't have it. I mean, Andrew Rice is not a PGA member. Jeff Smith is not a PGA member. Um, I'm not a PGA member. Yeah, sure. Uh, so obviously mm. there's, there's a handful of coaches that are, aren't, I wouldn't, I don't, I don't know if it's frowned upon, but I would say that we're still in the very, very small minority. You know, most coaches, even here in North America, go through the PGM program or the PGA of some sort, um, yeah. and end up going, you know, doing the whole, uh, working in a pro shop and then gradually making their way as a coach. But th mm -hmm. this is another question. So like, what, what is your thoughts on the idea of like someone trying to go professional as a player? and then failing, let's say, kind of the route that you went uh, for whatever reason that they failed, and then becomes a coach, like, would you have trust in that person to teach you the game, knowing what you, obviously, you're way, a way smarter coach now than you were, let's say, when you first started doing this, clearly, yeah, right? Sure. Just based on the information yeah. I've seen online, you, you clearly have a good um, concept of what's going on. So when you are, um, let's say like put yourself in the, in the mindset of somebody who wants to take a lesson and then they see that this guy played on tour, obviously they're automatically going to assume the guy knows everything, but like how much more do you know now compared to before? And would you trust someone now who's just failed as a pro to coach you? Cause obviously the biomechanics is so different than playing the game. Oh yeah, totally. Totally. I think as time evolves and let's say for now, from my own perspective, after coaching full-time, for quite a few years now i definitely think in the rub it helps it helps because you can really empathize with players when they're in certain situations going through those same struggles and being able to communicate them communicate with them in such a way where they where you really know exactly what they're kind of going through when they're going through the instances mm -hmm. um i would say fresh off like it's funny you say that because with coronavirus at the moment especially down in Australia, there's no tour events going on. So a lot of the, the guys that were playing, let's say on the tertiary tours and are, that sort of thing. Are giving lessons. Are giving lessons, right? And I'm seeing it pop up all on Instagram and everything like that. And look, at the end of the day, the clientele that they're, they're teaching, um, if they're just fixing ball flight or they're taking them on course, imparting sort of course management knowledge and that sort of thing. Look, yeah, absolutely time and place. And, um, you've really got to know the individual themselves. They might be an incredibly intelligent player and do know a lot about the swing. So right. on a case by case basis, it's, it's probably very different, but from my own perspective, God, the um, going through my apprenticeship, I, I suppose you learn a little bit about the theory of the golf swing, but then the actual application that to a golf lesson. Um, the only way you really learn that is through pure volume of lessons and that sort of thing. So that definitely took a time. So in hindsight, if I was to get a golf lesson off myself as soon as I stopped playing and then turned to coaching, uh, probably not, but you've got to start somewhere. Yeah. It's funny because the first thought when you said that a lot of those guys started giving lessons during the time off, we saw the same thing in North America with like the corn Ferry tour. Obviously the guys yeah, in the PGA yeah. is a whole different world. They're all millionaires. They don't really need to do that. But like the guys who are kind of grinding out a paycheck every week, you know, you saw a lot of them all over the internet, even offering their services. And I'm sure a lot of people that take lessons, it's probably a mixed bag between like some of them probably genuinely want to get better at the game and want to improve whether that's their strike or their ball flight or whatever it is and maybe learn a little bit. But then I'm sure a lot of them just wanted the experience of coaching, getting a lesson from a guy who maybe next year is on the PGA tour and then they can tell their friends, Hey, I just took a lesson from this guy. And now he's like playing against tiger or something like that. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure yeah, there are exactly. people out there who just want that experience. 
because how often are you going to get to meet these players? Probably not that often, right? I mean, it's a little different in the U.S. because the, the industry is so big that I'm sure, you know, a lot of these people genuinely just know each other. Like the, the world is very small in the U.S. In, in the golf industry where everybody knows everyone. But then like if you're somebody who's from out of town, then it becomes a whole different story. So like Canadians that would run into a golf a golfer on the PGA Tour would get very excited, whereas in the U.S., they'd probably be like, yeah, I already know this person. <laughs> so it's just a, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. a very, very different world. But um, yeah, I think I would agree with you on that answer. You know, I, I personally would not take a lesson from myself when I started coaching. I mean, I kind of almost, I don't know if I would say I feel bad about it, but like you look back at, you know, coaching 10 years ago versus now when you look at some of the students you had and like what you were telling them and you're like, well, that was just, you know. <laughs> that was just a, a whole question questionable theories questionable mindset of where i took some of the players and you know the the thing is and you you kind of sped uh you kind of nailed the nailed it on the head with this which is where you know having the theory and the knowledge of the movement is one thing and then applying that to a an individual who learns very subjectively compared to someone else and mm you know, you're trying to communicate your words in a different way for a different person, every lesson. And it's, it's so funny how like there are these people that understand the golf swing that think they would do a better job than some others. Right. Yeah. But they, they've never given a lesson in their life. And you're like, well, dude, if you put yourself in that scenario, you would see just how hard it is. And you know, the player maybe understands what they're trying to do, but then they're hitting five, six bad shots in a row. And maybe they're not finding the sweet spot just yet. And they're going to turn around and look at you and you need to say something at that moment. And if you oh, haven't yeah. been in that position before, well, good luck, you know? Yeah. It's all the, the soft skills of coaching, right? It's kind of like the martial arts of communication you could have in any day. Um, eight different clients coming through with completely different personalities and completely different ways and expectations of what they're trying to get out of the session with you. And you really just need to be on your toes the whole time, just thinking and processing exactly like how do I in this situation give them the best experience, not only so we're like motivating and inspiring, but also at the same time, obviously getting the message through as clearly as you can. So they leave there uh, enthused and excited about what they're going to do. But if you know all the information and you're, you just stand there and you spit out a whole bunch of theory, it, it doesn't, really, doesn't really prove much. And um, I suppose a lot of that comes down to seeing the results with the players. What, um, what is one mistake that you made when you first started coaching that you think you, you do a much better job of now beyond the theory of the actual lesson? One mistake. Is there something you did that like maybe the way in which you phrase things or maybe just how you stand, how much information you give that has gotten way better over the years just through your experience? Yeah, I, I definitely think it's one of those things. Um, golf, professional golf itself is a very selfish pursuit, right? So you're very much stuck in your own mind about what you're doing and what you're feeling and what you're working on. So those first few lessons, it was very easy to kind of default back to your personal experiences from lessons and um, maybe certain moves or feelings or drills or exercises that your previous coach has given you. And mm -hmm. even though some of them may have been beneficial, um, you just throw in a Hail Mary down there at times as well. I, I think probably the biggest mistake you could probably make is having the expectation that the client in front of you knows a lot of the, the simplicity behind golf even things like a club face should be straight down on the ground or um, what even that looks like and just starting from a core basics explaining that to them in an effective manner and getting to the point succinctly whereas when you first start off coaching your communication skills aren't quite there and i think you miss a lot of that stuff so they could very easily get confused I think that would be my exact answer is the idea that like when I first started coaching, I think I used to assume that players know things and that was yeah. a huge fault in my own coaching. Yeah, it's like kind of just what you said, even just putting the club face down on the ground, you know, knowing that something as simple as like a beginner comes to see you and that he would assume that his right hand needs to be below the left hand for the right hand. There are like all these dumb generic things that like, Perfect. you know, you probably don't yeah. deal with for 99.9% .9 of your lessons, but then there's going to be that random person who's going to come in. Who's not going to know this generic information. Like, Hey, I want to hit the ball straight instead of playing a lot of curve or whatever the case yeah, yeah. that your preference lies. Like these people don't know any better. And I think that I used to make that assumption sometimes that they do know the very, very generic things. And I think that was a huge fault. 
I, I think there's a lot of layers to that as well. Like even past the point, let's say entry level of that would be that you need a descending blow on the golf ball with an iron, like the low point in front, for example. Mm-hmm. There's the majority of the population of recreational golfers out there uh, are so still under the assumption that it needs to be lifted. So therefore, they're intent to shift it. Help the ball. Yeah, you hear it all the time, right? Um, but then even past that, I do a lot of um, like group stuff and I take golf tours uh, to certain places around the world and we'll do big clinics and that sort of thing. And one of my favorite things to do in these group scenarios or in corporate clinics is break down expectations of players and getting them understanding um, that what they thought is true is maybe not so much. For example, most recreational golfers think pros curve the, the heck out of the ball on every single shot on purpose. Yep. Yeah, they think they're binning everything from eight foot and then you give them the stat that it's just over 50%. And they're just so surprised with it. You can see them just go, oh, wow, maybe this game is a little bit harder than I first thought. But um, yeah, that's only going to make them improve on that sort of information and managing their expectations a little bit better. I think that as soon as you change a person's understanding and that will lead to a change in intent, you can improve a lot about a player's game. Mm. And misunderstanding and misinformation, I think, is the biggest mistake that a lot of golfers deal with when trying to get better because it leads them down the road where their intent is already off because they think something is different than it is in reality and you know uncovering that from their mind and kind of getting rid of all that bad info i mean i probably spend as much time getting rid of bad info as i do giving them new good ones and i'm sure it would be the same for you (laughs) totally agree so dude i want to do a little segment here before we kind of jump into some other questions and uh it's a new one, so you'll be the first called Ask the Coach. Just kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I collected a, a couple of nerdy golf questions and I would love to hear your specific answers. Um, love it. Technical stuff. So first question came in from a guy called Reman Ward and he basically said, what are some of the negative effects of bowing the lead wrist too much in the golf swing? Negative effects of bowing the leader is too much. Well, definitely just getting the, the club face in an orientation where it's too shut. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then let's say if you're an elderly golfer or you've got physical limitations and you don't have the ability to rotate as hard, well, you're just going to hit snap hooks around your left ankle all day for the right-hander. So um, being aware of that and bowing it too much, yeah, that can definitely have a huge influence on the club face. What would that do to the ball flight in terms of the trajectory of it? And can that be penalizing for someone relative to someone else? Yeah, for sure. So with the bow and the lead wrist, you're going to launch it a lot lower, um, traditionally with a lot less spin. So if you're a high swing speed player like a Dustin Johnson or like a John Rahm or Morikawa or one of those players, well, then definitely you're going to be able to get away with it. I think a lot of players are trying to get too much bow and too much shaft lean at times at impact, um, not necessarily in their backswing to coordinate movements. But if you see some ridiculous exaggerations at impact of what some players on the range are trying to do, they just don't have the speed to get the ball up in the air to be able to manage that. Good answer. That's the first thing I was thinking too, was definitely there are too many golfers out there who don't necessarily understand, I think, appropriate matchups relative to their swing speed. And you see these golfers, you know, high-speed players can get away with that. Obviously, they can launch it a lot lower. And because they're, they have so much speed, they can spin the ball enough to keep it in the air. Whereas, you mm-hmm. know, somebody who's John Smith, whatever, at some range is swinging his driver at 92 miles an hour and he's got a bunch of bow to the wrist and it's launching super low and spinning at 1,400 and he's wondering why he's not carrying the ball very far. It's like, well, dude, that's just not the appropriate launch conditions and match up at, at the bottom for a guy who does not swing with enough speed. So I lo- I personally love that answer. Yeah. Um, next question would be, and I think this is very obvious, but I would love to hear you break this down maybe in a little bit more detail is um, a guy by the name of Mark asked, what's more important, the body movement or the ball flight? Well, at the end of the day, the, the objective is to get the ball in the hole in the least amount of shots, right? The body movement of the ball flight, well, from point A to point B, you've got to have some sort of predictability to what that ball's going to do. So um, not the biggest fan of kind of eliminating one side of the golf course in regards to getting completely rid of a two-way miss because I think intent has a lot to do that as well. Mm-hmm. A lot of players will work on trying to eliminate one side of the golf course by just overdrawing it, but then they're not really that sure of where they're actually aiming in the first place to be able to do that. 
you hear players trying to hit draws all the time, but then they'll just aim directly at the target and hit a draw into the left. So um, for me, definitely ball flight. Fair, fair. I like that. Um, I think that's the obvious answer. I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what your body's doing. The ball is really what matters. Mm. You can have you can have the best looking yeah. body movement in the golf swing, but if the ball's going way offline, well, there's your priority. So um, yeah. I think I think that was a pretty simple one. Um, somebody by the name of Dali Nelly said, does the importance of shallowing the club change through the bag from one club to the next? The importance of shallowing. Yeah, I suppose you could get away with it a lot more without the clubs. Obviously, the, the length of the shaft on the shorter clubs is changing the, the lie angle and then the steepness of delivery. And also, depending on what sort of shot you're trying to hit as well. So, um, yeah, I would say it's probably more important with the, the longer clubs and less with the shorter. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, at the end of the day, when you have the shorter clubs, you obviously have a lot more loft at the bottom and obviously the more loft you're adding you're also going to curve the ball a lot less so mm. you know the idea of having this like shallow rotated move obviously a lot um a lot less important with the wedges and at the same time if you get too shallow on the wedge you it's not like your body's rotating nearly as much through impact or pre-impact i should say as you would with the driver so obviously you know the odds are if you're too shallow and you're not turning with that wedge you might start hitting blocks so I would, uh, I would agree. I think shallowing becomes more important as the clubs actually get longer in the bag. Uh, yeah, so the other day on the range, there was actually a, a guy who was using a, um, a plane mate and he was using it with a, a lob wedge. <laughs> and he was doing these massive exaggerations, almost wolf-esque. And he was literally just driving the heel into the, into the mat snap hooking around his left ankle and he could just see how disheveled he was getting. I had to go over there, take it off him and just explain a little bit of that to him. Yeah, that's pretty fu- It's so funny because, I mean, number one, obviously you're going to deal with a lot of heel strikes if you're too shallow and you're not turning mm-hmm. with those wedges. That's why I, you tend to see a lot of players uh, shank wedges a lot. You know, they get, they get as shallow yeah. as they are with their driver, but you're obviously not rotating enough to support it. So you get kind of stuck and you, and you either shank it or blade it. Uh, but yeah, snap hooks. I mean, you know, that's the golfer's going to flip at it to avoid the block. Where's that ball going to go? It's going to snap the corner. Um, oh yeah. One last question for you here. Uh, what would you do with a scratch golfer, uh, who's like pretty shallow, but cannot physically turn open at impact. So they have some limitations with their body. They would have some limitations. They're pretty shallow. Um, okay. Pretty shallow, but have physical limitations. Well, I wouldn't say it's that I, I would overall evaluate their golf game. Right. And I would see, is it even necessary for them in the way that they're playing um, mm-hmm. with their clubs throughout their bag for them to be that shallow, right? You've right. got obviously major winners who are very steep coming into the golf ball. And if they do have the physical limitations and they're not going to put the hard work in or they're simply unable to for whatever reason, broken bones or muscle impingements or something like that, well, then I actually don't think there's anything that wrong with coming in a little bit steeper. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I mean, at the end of the day, I almost think shallowing becomes more of a penalty if you cannot rotate through the golf ball. So I think that the more limitations you have physically, I think the better off you are being a little bit on the steeper side, uh, personally, just to keep the matchups a little bit better for the ball flight. So I I agree with that answer 100%. Um, Just to kind of stray away from those questions, I have a couple written down that I would love your opinion on, more from a coach's mindset. What's, um, What's your opinion personally on on uh, individual lessons as opposed to doing group sessions? Cause I know that you do a lot of like group night clinics and things like that, um, that, I've yeah, seen, yeah, yeah. that I've seen in the past. Do you have an opinion on one versus the other? Do you think one is better or even let's just say, what are the pros and cons of each? Yeah. Okay. So I suppose from a coach's perspective, um, the reason I started, I, I run a thing called a player development program mm-hmm. at my, my workplace and what that encompasses from, a, from my side, the business side, is some accountability and some, I suppose, continuity from all the players. So what they do is they come in for a new student assessment and I explain the options going forward. Um, we sit down, we kind of run through a whole bunch of questions. I find out their frustrations, their motivations, their goals, what they're looking to achieve out of coaching. And that vets a lot of the players in that process. And I've, I don't think they're a good fit, then I'll pass them on to one of my colleagues. But I usually deal with a lot of players that are invested. They don't have to be um, of a high skill level yet, but as long as they've got some 
time up their sleeve and they really do want to improve, then I'm more than happy with them, right? So uh, the way that I run it at my workplace is there's three different levels. You can either do an hour a month, two hours a month or four hours a month. A couple do a few more, so eight hours a month. And effectively what that entails or allows them to do is they get a certain amount of individual sessions. So that would be, let's say on the basic program, they get one one hour individual session in which I'll do hard technique work. And the reason I do that is because on top of that, within the play development program, they get 12 hours of supervised practice a month. And in the supervised practice, that's where they learn all the soft skills of scoring. So we kind of run off a, a framework called nine pillars of performance. And within that, you've got uh, performance, skill, technique, psychology, finesse, golf IQ, practice, putting and fitness. So I show them this chart that I've built and I effectively say that we run through all these skills in the supervised practice. So let's say it's effective practice strategies or certain drills that anyone can do, no matter what skill level, that's going to make them a better golfer. So low point control or arc height or ball flight or trajectory control or something like that. And I've got a bunch of games that I set them up. So they're usually, or they are done in a group setting. And we do 12 hours of that a month that I, I set up with myself and my colleague helps me with a couple of sessions. And that's for them to pretty much rock up. They could be anywhere from 10 to, I think the most I've had is 45 in one session. I've got six different stations. They rotate between. And from that, they're just doing a different task at each session. We do it for 10 minutes, but it just arms them with some, some extra knowledge that they're able to take away and then hopefully impart in their own practice. Now, of course, a lot of them only just come to the supervised practice and do the drills, but that's better than nothing. And for the player development program, what they do is it builds a culture around improvement and they start improving through osmosis because they're practicing with other players that are, that are obviously wanting to head in the same direction. So they've self-motivated and motivated by their friends to improve and all the drills are some, somewhat recurring so they're able to, to see how they fit in. So in my opinion, um, the technique work is always best done in an individual setting uh, because you can manage the, the client themselves with your communication style and the way that they learn. But then when it comes to all the other stuff, and there's a lot more involved in shooting a golf score, well, personally, I find that um, far more effective in a group setting. Okay, so that's the best answer I've been given so far because most people, when you hear about group lessons or sessions, you immediately think that the coach is going to put five people together and he's going to do, he or she is going to do technical work with all five of them at the same time on things that are obviously very subjective to their own personal games. But what you're doing is you're not doing technical group sessions. You are doing group sessions where they are learning concepts and different types of things that would benefit their game that are beyond, you know, your arm needs to be here, your club face needs to be there. It's much more of, you know, how do you control the low point and, and things like that. So um, I think you manage it very differently than most people would because it's a group session, but it's a group session on something that every player needs to know and benefit from as opposed to a technical yeah. mindset with the group. So um, I think that's great. And you kind of nailed it there, you know, having motivation because you want to beat your buddy uh, who's next to you and maybe hitting shots better than you in that specific method or whatever they're learning. Um I think is a, is a great motivating factor as well. So I, I do like the way you structure it. And that kind of leads me into my next point, which is you're talking about uh, golf development. Obviously, this is something you focus on a lot. I know that you came out with an ebook about it, the golf development playbook. You want to mm. talk a little bit about that and how that came to be? Did it start from these group clinics and sessions? Yeah, so effectively, when we knew that we were going to get shut down with coronavirus, um, we got very blessed. We were only shut down for two weeks, actually, at that point in time, I think, um, because we are the most remote city in the world, we're able to, to keep it under control and we haven't had a case for months now. Um, mm -hmm. So our whole board is shut down, even from the rest of Australia and that sort of thing. So when we initially shut down, we didn't know how it was going to go. I've always had this information, as with most coaches, you've kind of put together a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and you send it to some clients but it gave me some time to kind of really sift through the hundreds of folders on my computer and compile something together. And I thought, well, this is going to be a great way to, to still benefit the players that I'm working with, um, bring a little bit more revenue in through the front door as well. So effectively what I did is I just kind of compiled 
the whole bunch of the, the exercises, the drills. There's an eight-week practice plan in there as well. Um, just something a little bit different that I hadn't really seen out there before. Uh, it's got a performance checklist, which a lot of players really like. I give this to, to nearly everyone that comes through the door. And effectively, you've got three different areas of the game. You've got the long game, the short game, and the putting. And there's about six exercises for each, and it gives you a handicap pass mark. So, for example, uh, let me have a look here. Let's say with one of the short game exercises is from 40 meters, 30 meters, 20 meters, 10 and five. You've got to hit it within five meters, uh, all those golf balls to effectively be from a 20 to a 10 handicap. Uh, within three meters from a 10 to a zero handicap and within two meters to be a pro. Now, regardless if those are exactly correct statistically, it also just gives them a reference for where their game sits at the moment and gives them something to kind of aspire to. And it's only on one page so they can print it off, keep it in their golf bag and then tick it off as they go. All, all the juniors really love it. So it keeps them motivated as well because then they can compare to their buddies. Um, I put it all on coach now. So then they're able to submit their uh, scores and their checklist as they go so I can see that they're improving as well. On top of that, there's a bit of like a mental assessment, uh, some information on how to shoot lower scores through tactics, some statistic tracking worksheets, and then the practice plan as well. It gives them some guidelines of effective practice. I like it, dude. I love it. Um, I think it's good. So you're, uh, do you run your online stuff through Coach Now for the most part? Yeah, yeah, pretty much all through Coach Now. I do, I do some online coaching through Skillist and Pro Golf Me, um, but most of it's pretty much all done through Coach Now. I think it's just easier to manage it if you're already using your practice plans for the people you work with in person at the same time. Do you... Exactly. Um, yeah. Kerry, do you remember the first time you ever put out a video on the internet? I would love to know your story of how or why you felt it was necessary as a coach to start taking your instruction online. Obviously, the world is very digital now and, you know, there's bunches of coaches that have gotten very successful through online coaching. Uh, thankfully, I think I'm one of the few who's done quite well with that as well, but I would love to know you know, where, where did your mindset come from with online? Was it just a question of if I'm not doing it, I'm missing out and it's another opportunity for revenue? Uh, I would say back when I, I stopped playing. Um, so first of all, to answer, my first video was an absolute disgrace. Uh, and <laughs> first of all, you and every other coach in the world. So, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. But it makes you feel good because then you can see how far you've come, right? Yeah. Um, so when I was starting off, I, when, when I finished playing, I wasn't quite sure with the direction that I wanted to take. And I initially took a head pro role at a golf club. And during that time, I really sort of identified that spending the hours in the shop with a capped amount of potential income and dealing with all the dramas that come with working in a pro shop, I wasn't really equipped for that. So I really enjoyed coaching as well. And I knew from a business sense, um, I am very entrepreneurial and I, I really like business development in that regard. And I identified coaching as the best avenue for me to go down that path. Now, during that time, I was listening through a whole bunch of podcasts. I was pretty much did every online course you could imagine. I was full nerding out because I'd have a lot of time in the pro shop when all the players or all the members were out there playing where I was kind of just waiting for them to come in. So I'd get up webinars and seminars and everything like that. And I'd watch that. And during that time I started being very interest, interested and intrigued with what the best were doing. And I think it was about 2014 or something like that. So social media wasn't really that prominent. Instagram didn't have videos by then or anything like that. Uh, and most, most of the guys that were doing a really good job were based in the States. Um, I'm sure you're aware, but there's very few, there's probably less than 10 from what I know, active and regular uh, PGL well, coaches from Australia are actually posting online. So I saw it as number one, an opportunity to, to stand out from the crowd on my geographical location, um, mm -hmm. give me opportunities that I wouldn't get otherwise. But also when I was kind of running through all these coaches and I was seeing what they were doing, I was kind of perceiving or I was looking to the future. I was like, how am I going to become as successful as I can being a coach, um, be it through gratification of getting better players or monetary or making my name, making a name for myself in the industry. So I looked at the guys that were doing a really good job and there was a guy called Jeff Ritter 
who works in Bend, Oregon at the moment. He was doing a fantastic job. He was doing a lot of stuff with Golf Digest and he was posting some really good quality content on uh, Instagram at the time. And so uh, my good friend, Stephen Giuliano, who I'm sure you know, he works up in Malaysia. He set up a golf education summit in Thailand, I think in 2016, I'm pretty sure it was. And Cameron McCormick, James Siegman and Jeff Ritter were presenting. So I flew up there and watched them all present, introduced myself to Jeff and he became a mentor to me. And that was the first thing he said. He said, you just need to start getting in front of the camera and pumping it out because all the opportunities that I've ever gotten in the position that I am today is because I was willing to do something that 99.9% of coaches aren't. So just starting off and posting stuff and I've been doing it very regularly, probably five or probably six days a week, every week for the last five years now, six years. Yeah, I think that's a good point that Jeff made because it was the same for me. I mean, I remember starting on Instagram posting golf information and I think I was only posting kind of like you mentioned, videos was not a thing at the time. And I was just posting kind of, you know, screenshots of maybe a player's mm. position at some point in the golf swing and explaining it. And then, you know, maybe like a driver setup of saying, hey, if you want to hit up on the ball versus down on the ball, your tee height and a drill you can do. And I just remember so many old school things that yeah, I posted. Perfect. Kind of like you, you know, you look back on it and you look at your first video and you're like, oh my goodness, what was I doing? But, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's no, it, I know that a lot of people don't like public speaking as a starting point. So I can see why people don't want to put themselves out there. Um, and then at the same time, you know, people hate looking at themselves and watching themselves on camera. We're usually our worst critics. So obviously, if you have to film yourself for something Instagram related, like I do and like you do, Oftentimes, that also means that you have to go back and rewatch it several times over to make sure your information was delivered properly, to make sure that you didn't have any mistakes at any point that maybe you just didn't realize as you were talking. Uh, you know, just saying yeah. like a left versus right sometimes can happen where you're not paying attention. Um, oh, yeah. All sorts so, of funny words come out. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I know. And then sometimes it's like, you know, towards the end of a video and you say the wrong word and you're like, fuck, can I get away with this and still post it? Should I not? And it's, like, it's, it's like, I'm sure everybody's gone through that at some point where you're like, God, it was the last 10 seconds of a five minute oh, yeah. video. You know, why do I have to say that at that time? Um, but Jeff has a good point, which is you just got to start, you know, your comfort level is going to grow with that. I mean, I'm sure you're way more comfortable now posting your content. Like oh, yeah. how often do you post stuff on the internet that you know, you're unsure how people are going to perceive it or kind of taking the information. Cause I'm sure now you're way more confident than you were five years ago. And I'm sure when you're posting something now, you're like, no, people can debate me on it, but I, I have my, my proof and my, my, you know, answers ready in case someone does. Yeah, sure. I don't think I really appease negative commentary that much. I don't actually really think about it to tell you the truth. I just mm -hmm. put out whatever I feel at the right time, I see it more of a, from my perspective as a personal development exercise. So one of the big reasons that I then progressed from doing Instagram to YouTube, because I thought that if I'm able to, for example, knock out a hundred YouTube videos, sure, the first couple might not be great, but by the hundredth, I'll be a damn sight better than I was at the first. And mm -hmm. I've done the same thing from a public speaking perspective, I started with some sectional stuff here. And then I recently did one for the whole of the PGA of Australia on building a brand and a coaching business. And I think you're always going to have parts of what you say or what you articulate may be misconceived or construed in the wrong way. So never going to make anyone happy. Um, and I think, look, you've, you've definitely got to know the ins and outs of your information, but you know, as well as me, mate, you can, you can know it all and you can still say something the complete wrong way around and you're going to get some backlash for it anyway. So, yeah. and there's so much content, so much volume out there that by the time that video has been scrolled through once they're onto the next one and they're complaining about that. So it doesn't really bother me too much. I think the interesting thing about golf, which I feel like for sure happens in other industries, but maybe not at the same extent is that you can look at a golfer swing and two different coaches can say two different things of what this player should do. And in theory, the end result might be the exact same. So neither of them are incorrect. But if a student sees yeah. one of the videos, he's going to assume that yours is wrong if he liked the other guy's info. So then you start getting a question oh, of like, time. yeah, why is this player doing this when this other coach would have done that? It's like, well, that coach isn't necessarily wrong, but also neither am I, which maybe isn't always the case with other areas of the world. But with us in the golf swing, unfortunately, there's more than <laughs> one way to do things. 
<laughs> you know, it's, it's yeah. not as simple as like, you know, here's a wire, there's point A and point B. It's like, no, there's a lot that goes into it to get you there. So um, it's amazing how often like I get students reply. Just, just on that. Yeah, just on that. A, a big sort of expectation level that I have for a lot of players is, you know, when you're in the lesson and you're getting them to do a certain move, right? And then they'll go, oh, but what about that? PGA Pro, he does this move and why does technique even matter? You've got Wolf and Furyk and Bubba out there hitting these shots. And I think a lot of recreational golfers carry the idea that, well, for a majority of them actually, that don't get lessons, that getting better at their techniques not that important. They just need to hit the golf ball more. But I think they don't truly understand the depth to how good a tour player actually is, how many hours they've actually put in, and the X factor that they carry from just being an absolute thoroughbred and far more talent in their little pinky than what you and me have combined to be able to go out there and do what they do and win professional golf tournaments on the world stage. So just getting them to understand that being a recreational golfer, um, you're not spending all that time working on your game. Your technique needs to be more orthodox through various parts of the swing. So you can wake up a couple of beers deep rusty from the night before with your buddies in your ear and be able to slot one down the fairway without having to make 50 compensations for all the inefficiencies in the swing. Yeah. The way I always try to explain it to people is, you know, I look at the golf swing in two kind of macro concepts, which is there's technique, which is obviously the actual visual movement pattern that a player has, but then there's also skill and you know, the way I equate that is two guys are going to swing a baseball bat the exact same way. Why is one guy hit the ball more often and, and better than the other guy? I mean, at the end of the day, he's mm. just more skilled. It's not that his technique yeah. is necessarily better. He's just more skilled at it. His hand-eye coordination is better. His timing is better. Everything is better. And so when guys on the PGA Tour swing with very, I don't want to say inefficient looking because they're as efficient as they can possibly get, most likely. But, you know, when they're swinging with less than ideal looking golf swings, why are they hitting the ball so well? Well, part of the reason is they're just that skilled. These guys can manage the compensations better than the everyday player can. And like you said, you know, they hit a million balls a week. So a lot of them rely on timing, but they hit so many balls because they can allocate their time to it that they can sustain that timing and manage all of those, you know, funky, quirky things they do at the bottom. Whereas the everyday player simply cannot do that. They don't have the skill to do it. They don't have the time to do it. They don't hit enough balls to do it. Um, and so kind of, you know, to reiterate what you're saying is they need to have more proficiency with their actual technical movement so that they don't have to rely on that, which they obviously cannot do. Yeah, totally agree. Um, one of the last questions I want to ask you here, Carrot, is, uh, how often do you, are you using technology in your lessons? Do you use, and let, well, let's, let's say individual lessons, obviously when it's a group situation, it's very different, but if you're doing individual one-on-one -on -one lessons, how often are you bringing technology into the equation? So the, besides camera, I've got my iPad Pro that I use. Besides that, I've got a flight scope that I would use at the beginning with a new student assessment. We'd do a dispersion pattern and just get some baseline data of where we're at. A lot of the time, I would only really use it uh, more often than not. When I suppose I'm reiterating a certain point, we might be doing a skill development exercise where we're working on club face control or swing direction or something similar, angle of attack. Um, then also to then use that data to give them, I suppose, um, the confidence they were. So you can do side-by-side -side videos, but also backing that up with used to be your swing direction used to be 15 left and your face 10 open and now everything's a lot more organized at the moment of impact, then they can see that the data is not going to lie. And it's not just my preference from saying that this swing looks better than that. So I think that carries a, a little bit of confidence with it for the, the student as well. Um, on top of that, I use 4D motion. So biofeedback tools. I generally just use one sensor. Are you familiar with 4D motion? Yep. Yeah. So I generally just use one sensor um, and it's usually based on turns and tilts. So I'll either do it for the torso or the hips uh, and then just give them the biofeedback by the audible tone so I'll set the parameter for how much upper body turn they need for example and then when it's within range that I'm happy um, then I'll play an audible tone and I'll just get them to work on a couple of exercises or rehearsal swings getting to that point hearing the audible tone and then go ahead and then hit it and 
um, as with most players, when they come in the studio, they might feel like they're doing something, but there's usually a big difference between what they feel like they're doing and what's really happening. So using things like video and the biofeedback with 4D motion helps massive with establishing uh, an idea that they can go away with and, and work on that they need to exaggerate everything a million times more than they actually think they need to. Right. I mean, it's very similar to KVIS, basically what you're saying, which is where yeah. you're, you're getting the... Um... You're getting the sensor to reach a certain point in the range of motion where the the computer registers it as acceptable and that's kind of what they're trying to achieve and the audible tone is just like a justification like you went far enough now you're good yeah 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 you got it um if you could bring only one thing to your lessons would it be your ipad for camera yeah correct yeah that's uh i think every single coach that has ever come on here that i've asked that question to has said the exact same thing I think yeah, that we're, we're at a stage where I can probably get them to feel and force the movements without any sort of training aids pretty, pretty easy. I wouldn't say easily, but it would be, I would still be able to achieve it. Let's put it that way. But having camera there, I think is vital for every single coach out there right now. You need to be able to get them on a slow motion video. You need to be able to capture it. You need to be able to show them after what they're doing differently. And, you know, a lot of people are visual learners when they see what they're doing differently on camera, they can justify it. And they can know that it's getting better, even if it feels super weird, which it probably will at first. Yeah. And, it, and it, I suppose more than anything from an ongoing perspective, giving them a lesson review that they can go home, rewatch quite a few times before they practice just helps establish those concepts and ideas in their mind even further. I like it. I like it. Um, last question I want to ask you is uh, the same question I ask everyone about dream foursomes because everybody seems to be giving me the same answer. Tiger's always, Tiger seems to be in every single person's dream foursome. So I would love to know, let's say you take yourself out of the equation and there's four players you can be with, who would they be? Ooh, past past or present, doesn't matter if they're alive or not. Does, do they have to be golf players? No, no, not even. Okay, so number one would be Denzel Washington. All right, that's an interesting one. Why Denzel? Just a massive fan. Just a massive Denzel fan. Um, All right, number two enough. would be, uh, and I'm not playing with him. Uh, let's say you're there. Uh, let's say they would allow a fivesome. I'll, I'll, I'll deviate it for this answer. Okay, nice. So I'm going to go Tiger. I'm going to go my best buddy so I can share it with him um and i'll be there i need two more Ooh. i think i would go someone who hits a crazy long uh kyle berkshire okay and and van damme because their swing is sensational that is definitely the most unique group i've been told so you got <laughs> you got denzel tiger and van damme and kyle berkshire Wow. Nice. Um, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So I, I like that one. Um, why, why Kyle? Cause you just want to see someone hit the ball like 400 yards. Yeah. I think, I think you've got a, a wide spread of talent and techniques there that could uh, make for a real interesting idea. Holes. I love it, dude. So you want to just end this by uh, kind of telling people where they can find you online if they want to come and either learn more about you or take a lesson or just, you know, whatever the case may be. Yeah, sure. So my website is kggolf.com and I'm on Instagram and Facebook at Carrot Gray Golf on pretty much every platform. Nice. And that would be the same for YouTube as well? Yeah. So just Carrot Gray Golf Coaching is there. Perfect. I love it, dude. Well, I appreciate you coming on, man. I know that uh, your time zone is a little different than us, so it's probably uh, different different time of day, whereas it's the morning, early morning for us here. But um, <laughs> Yeah, dude, I, I love it. I love the answers. Honestly, very different than what a lot of people have said. And obviously, your upbringing has shown uh, how much you've learned as a coach. So I, I appreciate it. Yeah, awesome, man. And uh, just a personal note, thanks for everything that you are doing. There's a lot of lot of pros out there sharing some, some awesome knowledge that a lot of coaches like myself and all the students out there really appreciate. It's making it all better. I appreciate that, big guy. Alrighty, man. Take care. See you, bud. Bye. That was a wonderful interview, and uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed it. We have so many more people coming onto the show. I don't want to ruin the surprise, but within the next three weeks, I think we're doing about 15 to 20 interviews 
with some big names online and some big names in the golf industry. So that's going to be really fun. Uh, we're going to have people from Acro Golf come on and talk about uh, Golf Shaft technology. We're having people from TrackMan come on and talk about some of the new releases that they're doing and uh, some of the stuff that they're working on for the future. So that's going to be fun. And soon we're going to have the guys from Super Speed Golf on the show to talk about their training system. Um, you know, with what's happened at the US Open, it's pretty evident that speed is important. And so we're going to have an entire episode in which we discuss how you can get faster and how their training system can help get you there. As usual, we always say the same thing around this time, which is, you know, check us out on our social media. That's really where we're putting all our effort into giving you guys the best content. We're going to have new video series up there uh, on Shaheen's page, which is Scheme Golf, and on our school page, which is Nak Javani Golf. So that's Nak Javani, Shaheen's last name and my last name. Also, uh, we're doing all our contests through the social media channels. So be sure to follow, uh, give us a, a couple of likes on our page, subscribe to the podcast. And most importantly, if you guys could leave us a review, that would be really good. Leaving us a positive review, whether it's a suggestion or just any kinds of words of encouragement is great. And that would help us out a lot. And uh, as usual, stay tuned. We're going to be running a couple of contests. Some of our wonderful new sponsors are going to be shipping us a bunch of new stuff to give to you guys. So keep listening and we're going to have all that information in some of the episodes to come. And so have yourselves a great weekend. Thanks again to our sponsors of the show, Callaway Golf, Trackman Golf and Aqua Golf Shafts. And don't forget, if you want to hit the ball 20 yards farther with the Super Speed Golf training system, that can become a reality for you. Join over 700 tour pros by getting your set at superspeedgolf.com. Make sure to use the code SCHEEN, that's S-H-K-E-E-N, to receive 10% off your order.